baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's a weekend of reflection and remembrance as the nation marks two decades since the September 11th terrorist attacks that claimed nearly 3,000 lives. Welcome to KCBS In Depth. I'm Keith Benconi. Today on the program, 20 years on from a day that changed the course of American history, we'll consider the lasting impact of the tragedy still being felt here in the Bay Area still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. A little bit later on in the program, we'll be speaking with a civil rights attorney who's helped represent members of the Bay Area's Muslim American community who were swept up in surveillance and investigations in the wake of the attacks. But first we consider what this weekend of commemoration means for the Bay Area's first responders. Starting off that portion of our conversation, we'll be speaking first with Lieutenant Jonathan Baxter, a spokesman for the San Francisco Fire Department. Lieutenant Jonathan Baxter, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Hello, thank you for having me. So, thinking back 20 years ago, cities around the country sent first responders to assist in the 9-11 recovery effort, uh, and that included San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about those who were sent and what they experienced. So the the morning of nine uh, eleven, uh, when this did occur, it was a shock to to the entire nation, and it was almost unbelievable. And in the fire service, mostly on the west coast, and now obviously twenty years later within the east coast, there's a mutual aid system and an incident command system. So San Francisco initially had a, a little over a dozen individuals who were able to get over two. Um, New York uh, rather quickly, and they assisted on the pile. They assisted uh, New York firefighters, uh, New York police officers, New York community members with uh, search and rescue efforts. But more so throughout the the coming months, we sent uh, more individuals or more individuals deployed out to the New York area to assist with funerals. Um, Roll that back 20 years uh, later to where we are now. And we also have individuals who went to New York to help to eat, to help with the search and rescue uh, efforts, to help with the funerals and just to be there to support. And we've had a number of those individuals uh, since pass away from cancer, from, from other medical conditions uh, and retire out. But in addition to that, the behavioral 
uh, component to that, the mental health component to that uh, is off the boards uh, across the nation, not just here in San Francisco, not if you're a police officer, or a paramedic or a firefighter, a first responder, a nurse or a doctor, it's across the board. It affected everybody. So we're learning as a institution in the fire service and as a nation how to take care of ourselves better. And that leads into better self-care, mental health, physical care, but it also comes into preparedness for disasters, whether it's a human-made disaster or a natural disaster. Yeah, so a very long shadow being cast by that experience, uh, both in terms of the physical toll and also the emotional toll, as you're discussing right there. And that leads into the topic that I want to get to with our next guest. So we're now going to welcome on Joe Alioto Veronese. He is a former San Francisco Fire and Police Commissioner, also the Executive Director of the National First Responders Fund. That's a group dedicated to supporting first responders dealing with post-traumatic stress. Uh, Joe Alioto Veronese, welcome to the program as well. Thank you so much for having me. And so as we just heard right there, when we talk about the stress associated with this job, I mean, obviously, there's so many incidents that will trigger that stress for a lot of people. But um, September 11th, in particular, whether or not first responders were there responding to the disaster themselves, this is an event that is going to trigger strong feelings in an awful lot of people. Yeah, that, that's right. And as Lieutenant Baxter mentioned, you know, we do have a national uh, response program. And what we've become better at, both the fire and police services, over really over the last half decade, not even that long, is that our national response is not only just to aid in the victims, like the, on the, the collab- building collapse in Florida or in, um, in New York, but now we're finding that our national response is actually getting out there to make sure that the first responders who are on scene are getting the care that they need and are getting some of the resources that they need, um, in large part to organizations like myself, to um, you know, the advocacy that, uh, that's been happening around mental health and the acceptance of it as, as an injury as opposed to a, a disorder. So there's been a lot of work that's been done, still a lot of work to be done. So as far as the impact that it's having on people, you know, this was 20 years ago. And so, you know, we have people in the fire and police services that, that you know, were barely even born at the time that, that uh, this collapse happened. But seeing these videos and the calls that these individuals go on, that Lieutenant Baxter can talk about, is that every day you go on one of these calls and you see these things that can't be unseen, those are creating injuries. And for every person has a a different reaction to that injury, right? That could be something that they have natural instinct to cope with, or it could be something that they think they're coping with and they're doing fine with, but in 10 years from now, they go to another call or they they hear, they watch a video of 9-11 happening, that that triggers some sort of, you know, mental health issue. Uh, And so we're learning more and more about these uh, these injuries every day. And uh, we're really proud as an organization to be uh, at the forefront of um, helping these first responders who really need it, especially today. Yeah. Uh, once again, to you, uh, Lieutenant Jonathan Baxter with the San Francisco Fire Department. Uh, I mean, what would you uh, add to what we just heard right there, just in order to help those of us who are not first responders understand what those images of uh, that came out of September 11th that we're all being confronted with this weekend, uh, what, what does that mean to folks who have served as a first responder? How, what kind of impact is that going to have there? Well, I, I think we, we need to expand it past um, our first responders when we're actually looking at 
uh, 9-11 itself. If anybody has seen some of the documentaries that are that currently came out, I got through 15 minutes of the first episode of 9-11. I, I could not watch anymore. Um, it's it's uh, emotionally uh, impacting and you can hear uh, and see the, the actual shock and the actual pain in uh, our community members who were affected, office workers, moms, dads, daycare workers, baristas, hotel workers, not just firefighters, paramedics, police officers, and first responders. They're all affected by this. And at the beginning phases of our recovery from 9-11, there was a lot of emphasis on um, healing ourselves as a, as a nation, but also as an industry within the public safety industry itself. And that, that itself, in my opinion, helped chip away at the iceberg of public safety members not wanting to express their feelings, not wanting to share their feelings, not wanting to let people know, hey, I just saw something horrible. I think another important factor was 20 years ago, there was a lot of support for anybody in uniform, military, fire, law enforcement, paramedics. And I've been in this industry since I was 14 years old, and I'm now 15 years, 50 years old. And I've seen the, the support for your uniform public servants kind of go in a wave portion. And right now we're in a downward portion. There's not a lot of support for our brothers and sisters in law enforcement. There's still support for our brothers and sisters in emergency services and fire service, but definitely not as much as we're there. Do we want the support? Do we need the support or ask for the support? No, we're your public servants and that's what your tax dollars pay for. But as a community, wherever you live, no matter where it is, you have to think about that word, community and being a neighbor. And you wanna have that public servant coming into your house that is whole, both mentally and physically, because that whole public servant is going to be able to deliver the, the necessary care and services during your most horrible time. You called 911. It could be the most devastating time of your life because you called 911 because of something that's happening. And you want people to come in that are able to handle it efficiently and effectively. But more importantly, you want to know that when they go home to their families, they're going to be okay. Yeah, I thought um, some really uh, thoughtful comments right there. I want to uh, bring Joe Aliotto Veronese back in uh, again with the National First Responders Fund and just to highlight some of the work that your group is doing uh, this weekend as uh, you have for many years. You're holding the National First Responders Stair Climb, uh, climbing a, uh, a high rise in San Francisco to uh, raise uh, money for some of these causes that we've been discussing. And so this is an issue that has been on the radar of folks, uh, mental health health in the uh, first responding field for for many, many years. And uh, we just heard there from Lieutenant Baxter that there is a sense that that thick wall of stigma that prevents a lot of people from speaking about these issues, you know, with among first responders, but uh, really among the broader society as well, um, uh, is, is beginning to get chipped away. Um, is, is that what you're observing as well, uh, Joe Aliotto Veronese? You know, when I first uh, was a police, when I was a police officer years ago and police commissioner, this wasn't something, you know, people talked about that was, you know, back in 2004, 2008, um, as as police commissioner, it wasn't something that you talked about because these people 
like Lieutenant Baxter and, and the men and women of the fire and police services, they're expected to be the heroes in the room, right? So they don't like to show that they have, um, uh, you know, these, these dents in their armor. And, and I think when we really turned the corner was when veterans started coming back from Iraq and, and the wars that were in the Middle East um, and PTSD, we started to hear about suicides and those PTSD. I think, I think that is really when we started to turn the corner on this. And the public started saying, well, wait a minute, these, these veterans are coming back and they've got these injuries, but they're not physical injuries and we can't see them. So we don't really understand them, but we know they're real because a lot of them are dying and committing suicide. And so that's when people really started paying attention. And then it started to bleed into the recognition started to bleed into the police and fire services as well. It's like, well, wait a minute, these men and women see horrible things. And I remember I did an interview several months ago and I started talking about the horrible things that they saw. And the interviewer said, no, no, don't talk about that. That's just too gruesome. Yeah. But that's, that's the reality. And if you can imagine the reality of the men and women that were at the bottom, the bottom floor of the twin towers, when the body started dropping from 70 floors up, Okay. Imagine that reality for a second. They were yelling at each other not to turn around and look because they knew that if they did, they would never unsee that type of thing. And so as an organization, and, and we talk about this event that we're doing, the awareness is just as important as raising the money, getting it out there, getting people to talk about it, normalizing the stigma um, is just as important as the money. Um, but really that money, then we turn around and we spend it on peer support courses. We have courses happening at the fire department in San Francisco. We're creating peer support uh, courses at different levels, advanced, basic, um, and, uh, and, and also some retirement courses to help people transition into retirement. Um, but really it's specialized training um, because these aren't therapists that you and I, or that you know, civilians go to. They have to really understand the things that these men and women see on a daily basis to be able to relate to them in order to really be effective. And I think we're, uh, we're, we've come a long way just in the last four or five years in understanding that and start providing that care. And that's why, uh, that's why some of our peer support classes that we're offering are, are specialized to first responders, specifically in police, fire, and dispatch, because they're the true first responders. They're not any more important than the nurses and the doctors, but they're the ones that are on the scene that are that, that are seeing the things in, in in the state that they are, and it's a very different experience than than uh, what some of the the other first responders that we call doctors and nurses are seeing. So the the care is very specialized. We're we're super excited to be working with San Francisco Fire. We're working with Seattle, Boston, New York. We're working with departments all over this country, and it's 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 exciting stuff. Yeah. So just uh, very briefly, uh, I'll give you the the final word, Lieutenant Jonathan Baxter, with the San Francisco Fire Department. Uh, obviously, as we're discussing, a lot of painful feelings coming up this weekend, but also perhaps uh, some opportunities to reflect on new forms of support and uh, new ways to help those who have undergone trauma. Absolutely. So for the viewers that are listening, it sounds like there's a lot of horrible things that that your first responders are subjected to, but at the same time, and, and even more, there's so many wonderful aspects of being a public servant. And it's, it's a true calling. And I feel confident in speaking for anyone who wears a badge or anyone who wears a uniform for public service and public safety, that we will be there for you during your worst moment, no matter what. And there are times where we will cry and there are times where we will smile and we will laugh. And it's the times that we reflect together that really make us whole. And that's where community, as I mentioned before, are so important. 
I want to share 11 names of the original 11 San Francisco firefighters who responded to 9-11 practically that same day and stayed there for many, many weeks and saw many horrific things, but at the same time were able to provide comfort and care and support to people who saw much worse than our members. And I'm gonna give you the ranks that they were at the time that they left in 2001. And that was Captain Pat Gardner, Lieutenant Victor Wersch, Firefighter Bruce Platt, Lieutenant Danny Armenta, Firefighter John Fogarty, Firefighter Kevin Salas, Firefighter John Sikora, Firefighter Dean Crispin, Firefighter Tom Ray, Firefighter Jeff Moreno, and Firefighter Mike Cochran. Why are those names important? Because those individuals came back to our community in San Francisco, and those individuals led by example on how to self-care. They led by example on lessons learned how to keep our department, our members, and our community safer. And I thank them and I thank everybody who's been affected by the 9-11 attacks for supporting us, your first responders. All right. A lot of really important reminders right there. Uh, We are going to thank you now both for joining us. That has been Lieutenant Jonathan Baxter, once again, a spokesman for the San Francisco Fire Department, as well as Joe Alioto Veronese. He is the director, the executive director of the National First Responders Fund. Thanks to you both. Thank Thank you. you for having us. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're examining the many ways that the 9-11 terrorist attacks reshaped lives throughout the country, including here in the Bay Area. Up next, we discuss the reverberations of this national tragedy felt by the region's Muslim-American community. In the years that followed 9-11, advocates and watchdog groups have described widespread surveillance and profiling of Muslims by law enforcement, actions that have stirred fear and also prompted organizing. For some perspective, we're going to speak now with Shireen Sanar. She's a professor of law at Stanford University who studies civil rights and national security issues. She's also an attorney who's taken on civil rights cases related to claims of profiling. Here's that conversation. Shireen Sanar, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. So take us back, if you could, to the day of 9-11 and, and, and tell us a little bit about the mood that you had and, and others in the Bay Area's Muslim-American community. What was the sense of what that would mean uh, for that community? Yeah, well, as a member of the Muslim community, I and others that I spoke with were experiencing a mix of complete shock, grief, fear, uh, fear for both what had happened and what was to come. And in some ways we couldn't sit with the grief for very long because it felt like the targeting of the Muslim American community began so quickly after the attacks. Uh, and so very quickly, you know, we began to hear reports of hate crimes and you know, the detention of Muslim immigrants and, and so forth in just the, 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 the days after September 11th. Yeah, of course, those instances of hate crimes and uh, individuals targeting Muslim Americans are uh, very concerning. Then there is also the concerns raised by yourself and, and many others about the response from law enforcement and uh, what many view as 
overzealous uh, surveillance of the Muslim American community that uh, swept up quite a few people. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what that looked like from your perspective over the last two decades. So one of the most notable responses to the 9-11 attacks was that uh, the government began detaining immigrants around the country who were Muslim or thought to be Muslim. Uh, Essentially, people would call in tips about neighbors or somebody on the street. And often the tip had really nothing to it except just vague suspicion based on somebody's Muslim appearance or uh, the fact that they looked Arab. And ultimately, hundreds of people were detained in the months after September 11th. None were found to have a connection to the attacks, but many spent many months in prison um, on immigration charges. And this was happening in the Bay Area as well. So as a law student, I was receiving calls from people who were stopped near the Bay Bridge because they uh, were Pakistani and somebody thought that they looked suspicious. Right. And uh, so let's bring in a little bit more of your own personal reflections here, because as uh, you did mention, uh, you were a civil rights lawyer, are a civil rights lawyer. And uh, so you actually got involved in uh, some of the legal action that uh, was confronting some of that law enforcement overreach. Uh, What form did your uh, organizing and response take? So uh, at the time of September 11th, I was a law student, and my role at that point was just trying to connect the larger Muslim community with civil rights lawyers and organizations who could help the community as it was dealing with these hate crimes and detentions and so forth. Uh, A couple of years later, once I had graduated from law school, I became a civil rights lawyer. uh, And at that time, I also represented community members who were facing national security related profiling or discrimination. Hmm. Could you give us a sense of maybe some of the more high profile cases that you participated in or what would be an example of uh, something that could illustrate what it was uh, those you were supporting were confronting and, and how you might have helped them? Sure. Well, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, One comes from a few years after the September 11th attack, so in 2005. uh, And that summer, the feds announced that they had uncovered terrorists in Lodi, a small town in the Central Valley. And it made national headlines, and it was billed as a case involving um, what the government then called anticipatory prosecution. Basically, this idea that you prosecute somebody not because of what they have done, but because you think they might present a threat of violence in the future. And I went down to Lodi as a civil rights lawyer uh, with with other lawyers, and we were trying to help the community, because the whole community, the Pakistani Muslim community of Lodi, was under pretty intense FBI surveillance, and they were scared that the FBI would show up at their doors um, for essentially no reason. Ultimately, the government convicted a 23-year-old man of going to terrorist training camp in Pakistan. And just last year, that conviction was overturned um, because he didn't receive a fair trial. Uh, So that case stands out to me because it was emblematic of so many of the problematic dynamics that occurred in uh, terrorism cases after September 11th and that actually have continued to this day. Uh, Any any other cases that you think would be uh, worth highlighting and reflecting upon uh, this weekend? Well, one notable local case involved Rahina Ibrahim, who was a doctoral student at Stanford University when she was barred from getting on an airplane uh, in 2004 uh, because, as she was told, she was on a terrorist watch list. 
and uh, eventually her visa back to the U.S. was denied, and so she was not able to come back to the, the U.S. and, and um, you know finish out her work here. Um, the reason this case stands out to me is that she did challenged the terrorist watch list in court and a, a federal court in San Francisco um, became the first to uh, rule on the constitutionality of the watch list, um, finding actually in, the, in her case, um, there was a, a constitutional violation. Um, so that is an example where uh, someone local in our own community uh, pushed back um, against uh, the watch listing um, and you know, received some success from, um, from our local courts. Uh, another thing that that highlights is that you know we're we're not talking about mere inconveniences being pulled aside uh, in a line at the airport. Uh, not to minimize that, but you know people's lives really being upended in in very important ways. That's right. People's lives were upended, and sometimes for the flimsiest of reasons. In uh, this case, it turned out that the reason that Rahina Ibrahim was originally put on a watch list was that an FBI agent literally checked the wrong box on a form. Uh, and uh, it's that kind of mistake that can nonetheless um, have ripple effects on, uh, in somebody's life for years to come. And what is the current situation? Uh, what is the trajectory of these uh, sorts of surveillance? Uh, is it still ongoing, uh, still cases that uh, you're confronting in your own work? Uh, how should we think about how much has changed since the years directly following 9-11 to today? There is less explicit racial profiling undertaken at a mass scale. Um, and when I say that, I should say that I would think that the, I would call the, the Trump Muslim ban, which was imposed on citizens of a number of Muslim countries, to be an example of that. So that's kind of the most flagrant example in recent years of very explicit profiling. Um, but even apart from that, um, there continues to be broad-based surveillance in the Muslim community. You still have thousands of people placed on terrorist watch lists um, who are not really able to contest their being on that list. Uh, you still have surveillance in uh, communities, um, both in person as well as you know, electronically. Um, and there's still the sense that the community is being thought of um, by uh, certain government agencies as, um, as, as a threat. Um, and the other thing that's not changed enough is that it's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. And courts are often unwilling uh, to second guess the government when it says that national security is at stake. And what about broader society? I mean, 9-11 was such a jolt and uh, such a jarring experience for so many Americans. Uh, but it is reasonable to expect that within our own lifetimes, we will face uh, new jarring experiences. And uh, there is going to be some reaction that comes from that. Do you think that the experience that we've had over the past two decades might prepare us better to react in a way that excludes fewer people and, and causes less collateral damage? I would hope so, um, but I think that takes learning the lessons of the last couple of decades. And I don't know that we have moved away from our historical tendency to see racial and ethnic communities and immigrant communities as a source of threat. Uh, so just the willingness with which people uh, seize on the other, on foreigners or on um, you know, marginalized communities within the U.S. as a source of a public safety threat um, is something that we still need to do a lot to push back against. All right. Important perspective to reflect upon. 
On this weekend, two decades after the 9-11 terrorist attacks took place, uh, we have been speaking one last time to Shireen Sinar. She is a professor of law at Stanford University, focuses on civil rights and national security issues. Shireen Sinar, thank you so much. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 